Well, it's my honor to present Dr. Michael L. Tate, winner of the Great Plains Distinguished Book Prize, who will present From Cooperation to Conflict, Indian and Immigrant Relations Along the Overland Trails, 1840 to 1865. Mike. Well, thank you, Jim. Um, it seems very appropriate to be here today and to uh, speak on the topic that I'm dealing with. Uh, we're not exactly on the banks of the mighty Missouri River, but we're not too far away from where a lot of these human interest stories began. Um, it's important not only to the Great Plains on this topic, it's not only important to native relations with non-natives as a story, but it's also important in Nebraska history. And I think the probably best sense of what this might have been like had you been out here 150 years ago, had you been especially camped out or living along the banks of the Platte River somewhere between Fort Kearney and Fort Laramie, you would have seen the greatest mass migration into the West that the country has ever seen. In a space of about 30 years, over a half million people made that journey. Many of them returned East. They didn't all stay in the West. But the story is one that I think has been told so many times. Most of us have from childhood some notion about what this great Westward expansion was about in terms of pioneer, intrepid pioneers on the trails. Um, most of what we know, though, uh, particularly as it uh, affects us to popular culture and stereotypes, turns out to be pretty much wrong. Um, the idea of constant warfare, of one menacing war party behind every little nook and cranny of the trail, just waiting for the next morning or the next evening to attack the next family and decimate them. We've seen it all from popular culture all the way through our movies of the 20th century. The people who made the trip were making a very real trip. They weren't just making something to soothe Hollywood uh, or to excite the imagination of Hollywood. And most of the people in the period we're talking about, 1841 to 1869, were going to one of four places. The earliest were going to Oregon, more specifically to the Willamette Valley, seeking cheap farmlands, good farmlands, and town building. By 1849, some of the demographics change. California gold rush begins to lure so many people there. Many of them incredibly naive young men who think they're going to go out there and fill their buckets with gold and go home all within a week or two. And it's a sad fate that uh, many of them find, not because of Indian problems, but because of their own greed and, again, their misperception of reality. Also, the Mormon migration, part of this story, too. Uh, seeking religious or escape from religious uh, persecution and to form the theocratic state in the Great Basin. And if you add a late uh, comer in that story, I'd also add in the uh, period from about 1859 to 1869, and that's the movement of people to the Denver and Pikes Peak area, again, mostly miners. So these are the things that lure people. It's the kind of start over that so many of them have, uh, this feeling of... Um, beginning a new life somewhere else. Uh, most of us tend to think of this story, at least instinctively, as a white man's story, as basically a one-dimensional kind of thing. And then we think a little bit further and we think, well, no, there are people out there too. There are already lots of people out there. 
many, many diverse native tribes. And although we've, we've comparatively paid less attention to that theme of the native points of view, that's the part I think that needs the explanation. Where you look at not only Native American participation in these relationships, but you also understand it as a very complex relationship. It's never easy when two peoples come together. And admittedly, people are very, very different vantage points. The cultural values are very much reversed from each other. Some would simply write that off and say, oh, conflict. Two different peoples <laughs> speaking different languages, different cultures. They've got to just be at loggerheads with each other every day. Um, that may sound true in common sense, but what it fails to understand is that these Indian people that were met along the trails were not unsophisticated, nor were they just simply there as passive objects upon which white people could carry out their story, nor were they just nameless victims. Sometimes that's the, the new way out, to just say, well, all the Indians were bowled over by this, passive and, and uh, destroyed, and victims in the story. But the story is a lot more complex than that. Indians made their own decisions in these relationships. In the long term, we all know what happens. It's not necessarily going to be good for Native Americans in the West. But in the short run, their reactions make a great deal of sense. And oftentimes what we assume to be as naivete or childlike behavior is, in a great sense, wisdom from their own point of view. And they are seeing it over the short term. They're not seeing this over what it's going to mean 200 years down the, down the road. So I took that uh, tack in, in uh, working on this topic to try to understand that complex relationship where we're no longer just dealing with natural enemies. Now, if we could put ourselves back 150 years here to begin, and we looked at what the, quote, average American back east thought about Indians, for the most part, it was pretty negative. There are exceptions. The noble red man idea sometimes bred some positive stereotypes, although they were stereotypes nonetheless. But most citizens really had this repugnant image of Indians in their minds. And it started because of all the popular culture around them. This is not a very good rendition of it, but I think it gives an idea for those who can see it fairly well. When we look at all of those things affecting Eastern points of view about Western Indians, start with the artists. So much of what Eastern common folks saw about American art was pretty much along these lines. The idea of the Indians, their kind of ghosty figures to the right, just waiting out there on the prairies to sock it to you when you come down those trails. This is the kind of, of image that was run time and time again, where um, artists copied artists to give these kinds of renditions. And when you see that as the predominant view back east, and you know you're going to be heading down these trails, it's got to be weighing on your mind. Art's one thing. Even children's school books, I mean, we'd think those are pretty benign. But children's school books, I looked at a, a number of these just to get a sense of it, out of the 1840s and 50s. And the overwhelming image of these, both in printed, written form of description, as well as in the art, is uh, fiendish Indians. There are very few exceptions to that. So even little kids already get this mindset about, oh my god, where are we going? Uh, the bad Indians are out there. Then the dime novels come along. 
especially prevalent in the second half of the 19th century. Dime novels may sound like they were children's uh, literature, bad at that, but most of them were read by adults and apparently taken quite seriously by many, at least along this theme. They used Indian characters very often in dime novels as cannon fodder, in which the hero could achieve his victory over someone that was, um, you know, um, a danger to him. He overcomes those odds. There's a famous story. It happened in the mid-1870s. It was The House of Beetle. The House of Beetle was publishing a lot of the dime novels of that period. And they took a bit of a nosedive in sales. And I guess like corporate executives today, you come together in the boardroom and ask why. Why are sales declining? Well, one person among the executives, a man named Orville Victor, came up with a very simple solution. Kill more Indians. And what he was referring to was not literally that, but in the dime novels, if you want to sell more, have more episodes of killing Indians and Indian attacks upon intrepid pioneers. It was a very simple solution. But again, it was one which the American public could just readily identify with. He wasn't far wrong. Even the guidebooks, there were probably a dozen of these that were used at one time or another for people who went on the trails. They would buy these things, usually at the jumping off towns along the Missouri River, and uh, most of them didn't talk that much about Indians, surprisingly. Um, they talked more about distances and where water and grazing lands would be, often with great inaccuracy. But almost all of them, well, I'd say all of them, to one degree or another, uh, had pretty um, ornery things to say about Indians. One of those, actually it's one of the best known, is by Captain Randolph B. Marcy, a man who actually traveled over much of the West, a military officer. And in the 1850s, he wrote, a guidebook for people who were going west. And his is much more extensive, much more detailed than the usual 20 to 30 page guidebook. But in it, he essentially says, as word of advice to overlanders, never let Indians into your camp under any circumstance. Always show strong resolution in their presence. In other words, be tough. When you meet Indians, be tough. Don't extend the hand of friendship or uh, 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 let's, let's find common ground. Be resolute against them. Well, Indians often saw this as just plain rudeness. Uh, you know, how dare you come into this area and you're, you're uh, already uh, this, this stiffened back against us. All we want is trade or discourse or whatever. So even the guidebooks were, were an extra element of identifying Indians as enemies. The newspapers, I think, I think we sometimes forget how prolific these newspapers are about Western stories in that time. And uh, you could find uh, bad newspaper reporting all over the East on this subject, but especially I think here in these jumping off towns uh, that we're pretty familiar with today. They're, they're out in our region. Starting down here at Independence and Westport, Kansas Landing, Fort Leavenworth, Weston, Atchison, St. Joe, and certainly by the 1850s all the way up to Omaha Council Bluffs, which kind of became the, the new important jumping off place. You read the newspapers from a lot of these places in the 1840s and 50s, and they write a lot about Western news. That's understandable. But a lot of the stories they print are antithetical to Indian relations. 
they do play up this image of the Indians as, uh, as enemies, and they, they just concoct false stories, as we'll see in a minute. Just concoct false stories because it's useful to print it in the newspapers. And there aren't many people coming through these jumping off towns who are going to uh, question it. Newspapers are not reliable sources in every literal way for these, uh, these uh, stories of Indian massacres out west. And most times they're based upon rumor or just pure imagination. Finally, in the 20th century, in terms of priming American views about Indians in the West, we have Hollywood. And everybody in here has been raised to one degree or another on Hollywood movies that probably you can go back through your own mind and say, yeah, that was a bad movie. I remember how this, this stereotype existed. It goes all the way back to the uh, silent films, all the way back to a film called The Covered Wagon. It was done by James Cruz in 1923, a silent film. It was sort of a classic in its time. It actually used real Indians. That sounds uh, <laughs> patronizing, but this is like, like Hollywood speaking today. We used real Indians in that movie. Why, you know, what's the problem? There were Bannocks and there were Shoshones. But they might as well have been anybody else in the world because all they were were cannon fodder in the movie. They ride around in the predictable around the circle and they get you know, mowed down. In the 1960s, we had a Cinerama Spectacular, How the West Was Won. And it went through a six-minute Cheyenne attack on a wagon train. Actually, it was filmed very well and seemed very, uh, very reasonable in terms of what Hollywood might produce. Um, but again, it dwelled on, on that side and that side only. Um, also in the 60s, there was a movie, The Way West. It's occasionally on television. It needs some kind of uh, special entry and opening about don't watch this movie if you want the truth. Uh, but I'm always reminded in that movie, it was a Robert Mitchum uh, film, I uh, can't remember who else was in it. But uh, they are dealing with Lakota people. And the whole premise is the Lakota keep menacing this wagon train as it crosses the west. I mean, they go like 800 miles or something. Uh, because one of the members has killed a young Lakota boy. And so they want revenge. Well, the movie is so contrived that, um, well, you get a sense of it when you look at the characters. The, the wigs on the so-called Indians don't fit very well. They're sort of, you know, left and right of middle. And they speak Lakota language, sort of. Well, they speak a few real Lakota words, but when you translate them, they don't mean anything. They're just gobbledygook. That was an attempt to present a real, authentic movie of the westward migration. If that was the best we could do, then it's a pretty sad statement. Anyway, my point, whether you're 19th century observers or 20th century, is that you get a lot of this diet of, uh, of a predictable stereotype. The historical record about all this is very different than the popular culture image. That's the basic thing. I don't think that surprises anyone uh, as a conclusion. But the degree to which the two uh, separate is, I think, um, eye-opening. We have a very rich literature to look at. There are over 2,000 surviving diaries, memoirs, letter collections um, from people who went on the trails. It's not to say that everything they wrote is accurate. By all means, it's not. 
But it is a rich literature. It's not something you know reduced to a few dozen items where you have to be very anecdotal. It's, it, there's a lot of record here. Unfortunately, on the uh, direct Indian side, the Indian oral traditions are not that prolific. But we do have bits and pieces uh, of modern uh, Indian people whose tribes were on the trail and who did preserve traditions about it. Um, and those are pretty eye-opening, even though incomplete. The numbers that these actual sources reveal, and these are basically white sources here to begin with, the numbers tell us a lot about this story. Again, I'm not sure if this all shows up at the back, but we'll try it anyway. The numbers tell us part of the story. John Unruh published the book, The Plains Across, in 1979. In my mind, it's still the very best overview of the overland experience. There's nothing better that really replaces it. But he looked in one part of one chapter about this theme of Indian relations. It was just part of this broader study. And he is the first person that I know of, at least, who did some actual counting through as much of the literature, as much of the diaries and so forth that were available to him at the time. He looked at only the period 1840 to 1860, so a little bit shorter period than I did. But look at the numbers he came up with. 362 immigrants killed by Indians in that space of 20 years, which were the peak years, really, of this overland migration. And, as near as he could fill, a figure, 426 Indians killed by whites. Now, to get a better handle on that, if you're looking at that first number, 362 immigrants killed by Indians, um, that's 18 mortalities per year. That's hardly the image of a constantly uh, combative overland trail experience where people are dying in dozens or scores daily. The numbers are not very high. Now, one could say, well, maybe he missed some of these. Maybe, you know, some of these went unrecorded. And I think there is a possibility of that, although when you look at how many people are on the trail, you know, these things did get reported pretty easily. They weren't happening in isolation when they did happen. But maybe it is possible that there were some that were overlooked. But my point is it would be statistically unimportant. It would be so small a number that were unreported that it wouldn't really change the, the theme here. Well, a few other historians picked up on this after John Unruh raised the question, and they did some of their own counting. Lillian Schlissel looked at women's diaries. And she was looking at women's diaries more for some other reasons, but she did tackle this topic about, you know, how many people are dying out there from Indian attacks. She said, in less than 7% of the experiences that were recorded, in less than 7%, there, were, there was even mention of, quote, Indian problems. And that's wide-ranging, mostly rumors, if you actually get down. Someone would say, well, they heard from a passing wagon train that was coming from the west that there were some Indian problems about 100 miles down the way. And so they would report it. Well, there may or may not have been Indian problems 100 miles down the road. And it doesn't really tell us what those problems were. Was it just somebody thinking that Indians were out on the periphery of their camp at night? Or did they actually have a run-in with Indians? It could mean lots of different things. Still, her number, even with that Indian problems thing largely undefined, it's still a very small number. 
And again, as she emphasizes, most second and third hand accounts, they're not direct witnesses to Indian problems. Glenda Riley also looked at 150 women's diaries. More specific numbers here. Of the 150, she found 113 of those diaries reported no trouble at all. 22 had minor problems. And I started looking at that where she identifies uh, you know, these, some of these uh, cases. And they are minor problems, again, that I would put more on the rumor side. It's, they're not, you know, minor problem might mean to some of us that, oh, they attacked but they didn't kill anyone or something like that. No, it's, it's more just uh, the perception that we think there might be Indians in the area. And they would write this and it would be counted as a, as a um, minor problem or they would hear it from another group. Only 15 felt threatened and only two of those experienced any direct violence. Finally, Robert Mumphries, who was looking at a shorter period of time, 1845 to 55, he was looking only at Nebraska and Wyoming. I looked at it all the way to Oregon and all the way to California, but he's looking at, at certainly the major areas where you would, you would tend to find a lot of these stories. In that 45 to 55, he found only nine eyewitness accounts of run-ins with Indians and four secondhand accounts in the region he looked at. So I think the point here is whoever's doing the counting, it doesn't seem to matter. They're all basically coming to the same conclusion, that it's vastly overestimated in terms of how many of these occasions there are and how bloody they are. I said a minute ago that Eastern people, whether they be in the Eastern United States or whether they be European immigrants who are coming over on the trail, there are a lot of those, uh, particularly in the Mormon trail. Um, I said they were preconditioned to think negatively about Indian relations. A couple of examples I just wanted to run by here uh, of this. They are anecdotal, admittedly, but they're, they're pretty good. One is by Sarah Sutton, who wrote a very good uh, account of the trip with her family um, to Oregon in 1854. Um, she told the story that before they ever left back east, they put wooden planks into the bottom of their wagons. Those wooden planks had one function and one function only, to serve as coffins for all the members of the party who would surely die going west. They just fully expected it was going to happen. They were going to have to plant some people out there in the middle of nowhere, that it was just inevitable. As it turned out, they got to Oregon, never had any problems with Indians whatsoever, never um, had to mass bury uh, their folk. Another case is nine-year-old Barnett Simpson. He remembered watching as his mother, back east, before they began their trip, she made burial shrouds for every member of the family, fully well expecting, almost a fatalist she was, fully well expecting that most or all would die on the trip from Indians. I don't think they're the only two people who felt that way, but they certainly evidenced it in an extreme way. Now, it's also important to understand you can't underestimate um, death on the trail. 
It did happen. It was a dangerous trip. I'm not here to try to minimize that. But most people who died on the Overland Trail, and those numbers are significant, died from things that had nothing to do with Indians. Obviously disease. Disease was the big killer. Cholera, smallpox, these kinds of things were the ruination of so many families, so many parties. These were perhaps much more inevitable than the idea of an Indian attack. I'm also amazed in reading through so many of these diaries and letter collections, how many die from accidents. Jim Potter can speak to this, the number of people who get shot along the trail by their own gun or the family gun, dismounting from a wagon or um, uh, uh, passing a gun between people or hunting accidents or whatever. It happened a lot more than Indian attacks. The same thing with um, another part that is, just fills these diaries, but we never really think much about it. The number of children who get run over by wagons. I think we all have kind of that Hollywood image that these people set out in these big Conestoga wagons, which mostly they weren't Conestoga wagons, but you know, you'd have mom and pop sitting up there in the, in the, uh, um, in the wagon front, and they would be um, directing the wagon and the livestock, and the children in the back, um, sitting back there playing games or something else, having a good time all the way across. But uh, it's not that. Um, you had to lighten those wagons. People didn't just sit in those wagons and ride in them all day. They were extremely uncomfortable. You were better off walking. But the problem is, you get in these lines of wagons, and these kids and the parents themselves, when one isn't driving, um, they get run over by these wagons. And you have these classic cases where you read this heartrending story of this little four-year-old boy. He's run over right across the center of the head. He survives because the sand is so, um, uh, it gives so much under the weight of the wagon that it just essentially pushes his head into the sand. All he experiences from it is not death, but rather just a big iron mark across his forehead. So, I'd, if I were laying odds, I'd say you got a better chance of dying from something like this. Certainly diseases at the top of the list, more so than, um, than the other kinds of things. River crossings, uh, uh, bad food, uh, there are a lot of ways to die or to become ill um, that have nothing to do with Indians. So if we're looking about mortality rates out there, it's more for other reasons. When Indian, or excuse me, when death did occur at the hands of Indians, more often than not, it was not some premeditated act. Again, I think Hollywood has kind of given the image that people um, suffered under these uh, 100, 100 Indian raid or something like that, huge extravaganza of Indians planning it for a whole week or something before they would attack. In fact, most of the cases where white people are killed, there is no pre premeditation to it. There were cases where there were Indians seeking revenge, and they would take out revenge on uh, you know, whoever was available, not necessarily who had wronged them. There are those kind of anecdotal cases, but mostly when there was violence between Indians and non-Indians on the trail, it came more from misunderstanding about motivations than it did about you know, a plan. Indians would come in 
day or evening, and they would want to trade, as we'll talk about in a minute. Trade's big bond here. They want to trade. These white men have things that the Indians want, and they have things that the white man needs too. But all you have to have is some trigger-happy person out there on that wagon train says, here come the Indians, fire, and you wind up hitting someone, and the Indians um, retreat, obviously. They had not been there to cause problems, but rather to conduct you know, normal business. It's more often that kind of thing, more often that kind of trigger-happy, um, I'll shoot first and ask questions later syndrome than it is some kind of mass revenge by a tribe. You just don't have those kind of cases. Here is an excerpt from a diary, in 18, actually not a diary, it's a letter, in 1854. It has to do with what became famously known as the lost wagon train. This was written about back east. It appeared first in Pennsylvania newspapers and then was just plastered all over eastern newspapers in general about how this wagon train had been wiped out um, by Shoshones. One of the persons who supposedly died in this Indian raid was a young woman, a teenager named Agnes Stewart. When word got back to her relatives and friends back east that the whole family had died in this Indian attack, of course there was great grief. No one had survived. One of the neighbors, a man named J.D. Willoughby, who was very close to the Stuart family, wrote wonderful obituaries in the newspaper for all of his former friends that had been massacred. But a year later, he found out that Agnes was alive and well out in the Willamette Valley. In fact, every member of the family was alive and well in the Willamette Valley. And so he wrote to Agnes, and he said, I'm so you know, overjoyed that you're alive and all your family have, have uh, reached the Willamette. Uh, we thought you were all dead. And then he writes in this very, I guess, Victorian style of what his imagination had been when he first heard that they had, quote, been killed. This is him writing to Agnes a, a year after the so-called massacre. He said, at that moment that I received the news of your death, Quote, I saw or fancied I saw the savage foe approach you with fiendish rage and terrific shouts. I saw your men fight. They fought long and hard. They fought bravely as they fought for wives, children, for friends. But they all fell, being overpowered by numbers. I saw the Indians rush upon the defenseless women and children. I saw you, Agnes, throw up your arms in defense and cast an imploring look, but youth and beauty received no favor from the savage foe. Your heaving bosom received a wound from which the tide of life soon flowed and left you a lifeless corpse with naught but hoarse winds to sign your funeral requiem. Whoa, I mean, he got carried away with this and it was all in his imagination. Um, to him, that just had to have been what happened. Um, Good thing he found out year, a year later that no such event had happened. What is it, then, that draws Indians into this relationship? 
I said at the beginning of this that Indians were not childlike innocents who sat out there and just had actions directed against them. They were following their own cultural needs and seeing uh, positives in this relationship. So I've just put up here just some categories. It certainly wouldn't be the exhaustive list, but these are some pretty good ideas. What Indians are seeking on the trail. They're there on the trail on purpose. They're not there because they've been forced to be on it. These are not reservations or whatever. They choose to be on the trails. They're getting something out of this. Some things are very tangible. Some things, I think, just come down to almost human desire for communication. But we'll mention these. The first one is kind of self-explanatory. If you choose to, to settle along the Platte River, say, as, a, as a, an Indian population, uh, like so many of the Lakota were in the western part of Nebraska and, and eastern Wyoming, um, you're there because you want, we'll see, mostly trade with these overlanders. To keep harmony, what you want to do is keep the peace. You certainly don't want young men going down and attacking wagon trains at will because there can be no peace and then there will be no trade. It's just a common sense practical thing. Be nice as much as you can to the overlanders. Hopefully it will be reciprocated in most cases, but you've got to preserve this harmony. Otherwise, you just might as well give up on the trail experience altogether. Indians find value in those trails. They're not viewed as invasions. Maybe later on you have more of that sense, but not in this period. Another thing, you see a lot of the diaries where white men say, well, you know, another group of Indians came into camp today. We didn't know what their intentions were, but they all came and said they were seeking good papers. We don't know what they're talking about. We've never heard of good papers. It's not newspapers. What do they want? But Indians knew exactly what they wanted. They couldn't always phrase it in terms of what it was and all of its forms, but they were looking for um, testimonials from uh, overland wagon trains saying, we have been with these Indians three days, they are very reliable, they have helped us in the following ways and so forth. The Indians would then take these letters of recommendation, these uh, uh, good papers, and they would show them to the agents or they would show them to the military officers. Or, in some cases, when those went to delegations in St. Louis or to Washington, D.C. itself, they would present these good papers as character reference, that they were well-intentioned and helpful, above all things, helpful to the westward migration. They saw these as just important to unlocking doors with the people who actually had some control in their lives, government officials. Third thing. This is certainly the biggest of all, securing a flow of livestock and trade goods. Ever since the coming of Europeans to the Americas, trade had always been the centerpiece that brought people together. And out here on the trails in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, that is still very true. They liked two kinds of livestock that these overlanders brought. They liked horses for good reason, although most of the overlanders didn't bring lots of horses with them. That was not the primary uh, trade. Mules. Mules were very valued. And these you could often trade with the white men, particularly if the mules or horses began to break down on the trail. It was very often that the Indians would press for an exchange, something 
for that mule or something for that horse. And then they would take that horse or mule and uh, heal whatever problem it had, and then they had a piece of valuable livestock. To you, if, the, if that livestock is hobbled or something, it's not going to be any good to you, so you sense a good trade too. More so, though, I think are the trade goods. It's, livestock get a lot of attention, but, but more so it's trade goods. And the trade good list is literally everything. Anything anybody sees of value, they're willing to trade. And here's just a partial list of what you would have seen out here in Nebraska and Wyoming uh, being dealt to Plains Indians and other tribes further west, for that matter. Trade goods that would have included things like this. Knives, tools, flints, guns, gunpowder. We, we would all come up with those, for sure. Metal pots, needles, ornamental beads, woolen shirts, sugar, metal fish hooks, tobacco, mirrors, and on and on. It's a long list. And what always occurs to me sometimes when people read this, they say, oh, this is just another case of the Indians out here getting built, just like that infamous story of selling Manhattan Island for a bunch of junk jewelry. But it's, it's a wrong way to perceive it. If these are items that have a value out here on the plains because of their relative scarcity, they're worth a lot. We might not take needles too seriously today as something that everybody would have to uh, trade meticulously for, but there, there is a reason to trade for metal needles. They're just, they're just not available. You don't go down to the local store and buy them. So what Indians saw in trading for these kinds of items and others, they saw a good deal. They didn't say, oh, the white man bilked us again, they always bilked us, they're always so smart. Probably more often than not, when Indians came out of these trading relationships along the Platte River, they pretty much, uh, the inside joke was, boy, we've pulled another good trade on those white men. They don't know how valuable these items are. We can take those items and use them. They are labor-saving conveniences. Or we can take them and trade them to other tribes and members of our own tribe further away from the, river, uh, from the uh, Platte River, where they are even more scarce and more valuable. We become powerful middlemen in the trade just like the early fur trade had been established. These are the kinds of motivations, certainly not the sense of, uh, uh, oh, here comes the white man, he's going to skin us again. That's, that's not what happens. Um, we're, we're so used to looking at commodities, I think, in the wrong way of that trade. Then under number four, private motivations. These are the most interesting in the book, but they're the hardest to classify. They simply are people wanting to meet other different people. This is hardly the image of let's go down and attack them because they have a lighter color skin or let's go attack them because they have a darker color skin. There is a legitimate curiosity among Indian people about these overlanders and vice versa in many cases. Now there are language problems to a lot of communication. These people are usually not speaking English directly to these overlanders. But it is interesting to read in the diaries how overlanders' opinions change about Indians, starting really once they cross the Missouri River into Nebraska or into uh, northeastern Kansas from the Kansas City area. They see these people as interesting. They're different, but they're interesting. And you have all these diaries just filled with stuff. You know, met another. Uh, village of people here uh, 40 miles east of Fort Laramie. Um, uh, they came into camp, uh, we traded, 
Um, we all held a big dance and, mu and music fest. They playing their music, we playing our music. Had a grand old time. And it happens a lot. There's nothing out of that that enriches one monetarily, but there is something in that relationship that enriches people personally. The downside of it all in this desire to be making friends of strangers is, of course, what I think would occur to all of us. These wagon trains don't stay in an area very long. They just keep moving. And so if you're an Indian village and you meet this swell group of people one week and you spend some time with them to mutual enjoyment, they're going to move on and a new group is coming behind them. Maybe not so friendly. Maybe not so prone to understand and seek friends. So it's a constantly ambiguous situation. If these were permanent settlements, Indian and white living side by side, you could measure these things a lot better. But they're just so tenuous and uh, uh, changeable. But I, I'm amazed how many people change their minds about Indians. And that one thing, when they start spending time with Indians in these camps, and they start getting to that human level of music and dance and horse races and uh, you know any kind of contest, then it starts. They start to change their mind. These Indians aren't so bad after all. Now maybe the next one's 50 miles down the road. We don't know about them, but these Indians are really. Not only nice, but they're helpful. That changes personal views more than anything. Well, again, this list could be longer. Um, I'll kind of skip ahead because I'm going to run short of time. Um, what is it that white people are seeking from Indians then? Uh, because I say this is a two-way street, and I'd suggest in this list that whites get quite a bit out of this dual relationship. And most all these examples come right out of large numbers of diaries and letters and so forth. One of those is maps. Um, these people who go west on the overland trails, they didn't really have um, accurate maps in the way we would think of them today. They had those guidebooks and they had basically the trail. You could follow the trail of where other wagons had preceded you. And that was all pretty good as long as you're in the Platte Valley or the Sweetwater Valley because you're along the, the river anyway. That's the natural highway. But once you get further west, it's a little more difficult once you get out in the Great Basin. It's often in that area, particularly Nevada and eastern California, that you start to get more desire among overlanders to have Indians draw the maps. And if you've ever seen these, there are quite a few of these that survive. They're very primitive by our standards today, but it's understandable why. They would be drawn on, the, on the paper, and they would just be squiggle lines, some indicating mountains. There would be some indicating low spots where a river was, where a lake was, where water was. Basically, you followed their map. But most of what they're telling you is... Um, or what they're conveying to you in English is, uh, you know, what each of these symbols mean, what to avoid, what to, uh, what, what to do. So there's more explanation of these crude maps than just the, the map itself. And um, when you think about it, all those trails out there in the West, they often have white men's names, but Indians laid them out. And they were the ones who had the knowledge for the moment. They could tell you if a spring was going to be dry. The, the 
you know, the uh, guidebook written four or five years earlier may say, oh, that, that spring, it's good water, good crystal water. But from year to year, that spring may be there and may not be there. The local Indians can tell you. The guidebook can't. And there's a lot of um, comment about the, um, the use of these maps. Sometimes they guided the wagon trains, at least for short distances, usually for pay. And this, I think, was more true out in uh, Nevada uh, with Paiute people and some Shoshone people, and then on over into California, again, where the trails became less um, identifiable. Uh, they would just guide you, and you, you paid for the service. The problem, of course, with that is these people weren't willing to go 200 miles on the trail to guide you. They would only go short distances. Uh, you would hope either to find someone else that could duplicate that for the next stretch or take your chances maybe the, maybe the landscape would uh, improve or something. But a lot of this, um, we often give credit to so-called mountain men for guiding wagon trains, but we give very little credit to Indians for guiding wagon trains. And it sure happened, at least on, on small uh, uh, stints. Bridge and river crossings. Um, I mentioned up here on the Columbia River when you're going to Oregon, the rafts up there that carry these wagons and carry the people and their possessions, they're almost all Indian operated. They were there a long time. They were just a regular part of the business. And uh, that, was a, that was a tough stretch uh, along the Columbia and uh, you couldn't do it overland. You pretty much had to load onto these rafts and go the Columbia route if you were going on to Portland and places like that. Um, even up here on the Elkhorn River, the Elkhorn's certainly not the Columbia, but it was a bit of a barrier to get across, and for about uh, nine months, Pawnees ran the bridge up at uh, Elkhorn Crossing. Um, they eventually got chased off by whites. Whites eventually put their stamp on, it, on the bridge. It was a very primitive bridge. A lot of people complained about it, but it was, uh, it was a toll bridge the Pawnees set up. Uh, out on the Loop Fork, uh, particularly when the river might be high, the, 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 um, where the, the loop and the uh, plat come together, uh, there were Indian uh, aides there to help you across. Um, same thing out around uh, North Platte and Oglala and places further west. So um, Indians ran a number of these places, uh, sometimes in tandem with whites who operated the same kind of uh, ferrying service at these rivers too. Sometimes they were competitors. Medicine to sick, sick overlanders. There aren't lots of cases of this that I could find, but there are notable ones where Indian medicine was purchased and used, and, and a handful of cases I found where Indians actually took uh, ill uh, overlanders into their camps and kept them for multiple days trying to um, heal whatever was wrong with them. That's a pretty dangerous thing given the, the threat of cholera and smallpox out there. Uh, and I wouldn't expect that there were lots of cases of that, but there were some. Uh, Replacing oxen and horses. Obviously, if you're out there and your oxen break down, you're not going to be able to get replacements very easily. In most cases, you're not going to get replacements unless you buy them from Indians. And very often, they have gotten them from other wagon trains when those animals broke down before. They've nursed them back to health, and they will sell them or trade them more likely. Selling is not uh, so much the combination here, but, but trading for other items. They rescued stranded hunters, broken down parties frequently, especially the stranded hunters. People just got disoriented on the plains so easily. And they'd get away from their camps and just become lost. And it was Indians who brought them into camps so many times. Uh, hardly the image because you'd think, oh, the Indians are going to 
find one or two isolated men. These are easy pickings to kill and rob, um, but that's usually not the case. Uh, fed starving overlanders, that definitely happened a lot. Locating lost livestock, uh, because overlanders uh, would turn the livestock to roam at night, and uh, inevitably some would, uh, uh, would get away, and uh, in really bad cases, you'd have to wait until you could, you could catch the livestock. And finally, one, I only found, I think, five cases of this in the whole story. They were in eastern Kansas and Nebraska, but they were really kind of incredible stories where overlanders would want to send mail back to their relatives back east. And once they crossed through Fort Leavenworth, there really wasn't any mail service until you got to Fort Kearney. But in these isolated cases, these um, families would turn over their personal mail to two or three Indians with the understanding they'd pay them, with the understanding that the Indians would take the mail to Fort Leavenworth or one of the jumping off towns along the Missouri River in Kansas, Missouri. Now you'd think, okay, that's a license to steal. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll take your, uh, give me some money, I'll, I'll deliver your mail back there in the, the post office. Um, it sounded like a real con job that they're not, they're not really going to do that. They got to ride 100 miles east or 200 miles east to deliver mail. This is not something they do in their own lives. But in the, in the cases that I found, it was confirmed that they did deliver the mail to the post offices because it went back to the families back east. So either out of personal honor or out of the fact maybe they were going to Fort Leavenworth anyway, they delivered the mail. Um, I wouldn't have given much chance of that succeeding, but uh, it did happen. In some of the cases, these things up here were compensated. The Indians actually charged for them. In other cases, they were just done out of human um, caring for each other. There was no compensation. Giving of medicine and this kind of thing, nah, nobody paid for that. Indians just did it. Um, well, what changes? I indicated in here it's from cooperation to conflict. So by the time you get in the late 1850s, some of this story I've been telling is beginning to change, in some cases somewhat dramatically. Relations are getting harder on both sides, and especially, I think, as it affects Indian people. The factors that gradually change these relationships, well, the first one is the big one, and it's the one that would occur to all of us. What had started out as a trickle in 1841 in the movement west, where the overlanders were affecting Indians in limited ways, it grows to a flood by the late 1850s. Just way too many white people come in this way. And more and more of those people coming through are putting more and more pressure on the resources. And presumably, as they come through these areas, not only affecting resources, um, but you've got some increasing percentage of these are bad eggs who cause problems with Indians. So the more that are coming, probably the more likely there's gonna be some conflict. Big Elk, an Omaha man, leader, chief, made the point very well in, in the early 1850s. Big Elk had been to St. Louis. I think he had been to Washington, D.C., I'm not sure. But he had seen the numbers of white people in the East, and that greatly affected him. And in 1853, he told his people in a speech that was sort of later um, 
rewritten in a contrived way. But he spoke of the coming flood of the white man. And the Omahas were right in this target line. I mean, they were in basically Douglas Sarpy County. And that's where this whole wave was passing through in the 50s. I mean, it was the new jumping off town. And he, he described to his people, he said, a wave is coming, a flood is coming. Be kind to your fellows. Be kind to your fellow Omahas, because the times are, a bad days are coming. And there's nothing that can be done about them. The flood of white men. What he's sensing in 1853 is, I think, what other tribes are sensing a bit later than that, where these numbers are just increasing so dramatically. And true enough, 1854, you have the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and you see the Omaha people moved out of Sarpy County up to Thurston County, where they are today. Uh, same thing happens uh, in uh, delimiting some of the lands of the removed tribes down in eastern, uh, eastern uh, Kansas. Kansas-Nebraska Act proves to be a big issue, and it has a lot to do with these overland trails. Um, so anyway, too many whites passing through. Destruction of bison herds, that's pretty obvious to us. You start killing bison, which overlanders did in huge amounts, sometimes for food, but increasingly when you read the diaries, it's for sport. We've all heard that too. Men just go out and they shoot bison just because they want something to do at the end of the day. They leave the carcasses on the ground. They're predecessors of later buffalo hunters of, you know, 20 years down the way. The bison herds are already being attacked. It had started before the overland trails. It had started with the fur trade as, as people took bison hides in increasing numbers by the 30s and 40s. And when you destroy bison, especially for Plains Indians, you're not only destroying this walking commissary where the buffalo provides so many of the material aspects of life, but you're also killing off the spiritual world of Plains Indians when you destroy the buffalo. There's more here than just a physical assault on Indians, there's a spiritual assault. And uh, uh, this, this is good reason to be very angry. I've listed bison, but you know, honestly, it's all kinds of animals. It's antelope and everything else out there. It's not just bison, and it's the same problem. Indians have less of these things to use, and um, the bison herds begin to pull away from the Platte River Valley and the Sweetwater River Valley and pull back into other more remote areas. To, uh, escape these onslaughts. Um, destruction of scarce timber in the Platte and Sweetwater River Valleys, yeah, uh, overlanders uh, cut down the relatively few trees that were out there. Uh, they used them for fires and other things, but these were necessary as lodge poles and uh, uh, travoy and other items that Indians needed the wood for too, so it was another problem of, uh, of um, resources. The one above it, the, the fires, Indians blamed whites all the time in these wagon trains for leaving fires that would create prairie fires, huge prairie fires. And uh, even if one says, well, some of those were probably lightning strikes, uh, there's no doubt about it that the more overlanders that came, the more prairie fires you get. That destroys the grazing lands of these tribes that locate along the trail. Um, desecration of platform burials, some people just couldn't, they, they just couldn't avoid the temptation. They had to get up and see what these platforms contained, the burials of Plains Indian people. And they'd get up there and they'd take souvenirs out, beads, 
personal objects that were placed in the burial, or they'd take the skulls out and take them back as souvenirs to their wagon train. Uh, I can't imagine anything more, um, um, uh, more uh, revolting to uh, Indians than to see uh, uh, relatives and ancestors that were treated in this way. Um, epidemics, certainly a, those are increasing as the time goes on. In fact, uh, in the um, early 1850s, if you go a little further south than the trails we're dealing with, maybe as many as a half of the Kiowas and a half of the Southern Cheyennes died from diseases within about a two, two and a half year cycle. That's demographic disaster. And it's happening to all the tribes to one degree or another. So if you're going to have white people passing through, this is the one thing you've got to, one terrible reality you've got to deal with. And finally, military action at Blue Water Creek, Ash, Battle of Ash Hollow. This was a military action taken against um, Brule Sioux people. And it, uh, as has been recently stated, is kind of the beginning of the, of the Plains Indian Wars in, in so many ways. Those wars are certainly going to become more manifest in the Civil War and the late 1860s and 70s, the classic period. But you start seeing that by uh, mid and late 50s. You start seeing. But my point, even about these things in haste, is um, despite these worsening conditions, and they all are very important factors, despite that, the trade continued, the associations continued, it never disappeared, even in the worst years. And I think that says something about how particularly Indians still felt that they were getting some advantages out of this relationship, that they were not prepared to give up. Now, Senate could say, well, they're getting too dependent on it, and hence they've lost all their... Uh, their uh, ability to reason about it. But I think it's more than that. I, I think they, they took risk, and in the long run, these were terrible risks. Um, but at that time, without the crystal ball of what it's going to mean, um, it still made sense to retain these, these friendly relations along the trail. Okay, let me just kind of finish up here with uh, one, kind of where we started on this. And that is uh, the idea of big massacres of Indians. Uh, excuse me, big massacres by Indians of the wagon trains. I want to put up here <coughs> the two most widely reported massacres in the West dealing with the central route of the Overland Trail. The first of these, the Donovan Massacre, occurred in 1855 at Devil Gates, uh, Devil's Gate, Wyoming. The story's written about this and projected back into Eastern newspapers and then uncritically reported time after time, made it into the epic Indian fight. Over 2,000 Sioux and Cheyenne attacked this innocent wagon train. Now first, if you have any sense about numbers out here on the plains, it's pretty hard to believe you're gonna get 2,000 Sioux and Cheyenne at <laughs> in some kind of war party. It's just not gonna happen. That's probably the first question we should have. Also, the description of it. They talk about how the wagon train passes through the narrow gates of Devil's, of, of Devil's Gate, this, this rock formation, and it, the Indians were up on top, and they were firing straight down on them. Well, the wagon trains didn't go through the cleft in the mountain. It went around it. Uh, 
nobody ever went through the middle of Devil's Rock, uh, uh, Devil's Gate. It's a story that tells us over 300 overlanders, of over 300 total, only 19 survived. So a big, big massacre. It was widely known in the 19th century, I think it's been largely forgotten in the 20th, largely because it never happened. There was no Donovan massacre. It started in a Pennsylvania newspaper, no, excuse me, it started in the Oregon Argus newspaper, and then, you know, went back east and was reprinted time and time again. There is no foundation for this greatest of all massacres. It never happened. There's not even one little small shred of truth to it that was magnified. It just didn't happen. It came out of someone's imagination. That brings me to the second big massacre, the Alamo Massacre in 1861. Now, by 1861, there were considerable more violent episodes on the Overland Trails. This one, southeastern Idaho, it's a bit different location, but it sounds a little bit like the Donovan Massacre in detail. A report of over 1,000 Shoshones killing more than 300 Overlanders with only five survivors. It's a fantastic story. And we know now that it was first reported, literally first time reported, in 1927, long after the event. It was reported by a local historian who lived in the county where it happened, a Mr. Charles Walgamont, who described it as the greatest Indian disaster that ever occurred in Idaho and probably the entire United States. It was a local hoax. It not only didn't happen, but it was used in 1927 to sell a tourist campaign into the area. Bring the people in and see this horrible massacre that happened way back when. I'd like to say that that has now been put to rest and forgotten and nobody ever pays attention to the Alamo Massacre anymore. But as late as 1999, there is a historical marker at that site that honors the, the 300 plus people who died there that day. It's not been removed, at least as of 1999. Stereotypes die hard because people, to one degree or another, expect them to be true. Let me just read one final thing and then I'm done, <laughs> finally. Um, in trying to put all this together, and particularly to put a human face on it, and I think that's what the book does, it really is the story of people more than these kind of broad brush strokes that I'm giving you today. It's a story of people and their own personal encounters with this issue. Um, I want to just read one person's point of contact as she recorded it at the time it happened. Um, Helen Clark encountered an Indian woman, uh, this is a, a Sioux woman, who indicated that she had dust in her eyes. The sympathetic Illinois traveler extended a wet cloth to the appreciative Sioux woman, who not only cleaned her face, but also washed her baby with it. 
The endearing words imparted between mother and child led Clark to write in her diary, it sounded more civilized than anything else I had ever heard. Emotionally moved by the scene, she subsequently fed a bashful Indian boy who had been reluctant to, to bother her, even though he was quite hungry. Her dual acts of kindness struck a responsive chord among the Lakotas, and they went out of their way to thank her for the altruistic gesture. Even though this event had no profound impact on Indian-white relations, it demonstrated the social and psychological possibilities when Indians and whites set aside their negative preconceptions and dealt with each other not as strangers, but as friends. It serves as an eloquent testimony to what might have been in American history rather than what was. Thank you.